got an ID in her? No, sir. Well, for now, she's a Jane Doe. Find her in the basement of the Douglas's place. No one has a clue who she is. Time frame? It's got to be tonight. Okay. This is the autopsy of an unidentified female, henceforth known as Jane Doe. Performing the autopsy will be myself, Tommy Tilton, attending coroner. I will be assisted by Austin Tilton, certified medical technician. Hair, brown, eyes, gray. You don't see clouding like that unless the body's been dead for days. No lividity. No rigor mortis either. When do you think she died? Her wrists and ankles are fractured. How do you break your wrists and ankles without any outward signs? The tongue has been severed. Crudely, non-surgically. Imagine all this internal trauma was reflected externally. Shattered ankles and wrists, fire-burned lungs, scarred organs. What would she look like? She'd be mangled, disfigured beyond recognition. But she's not. What the hell was that? It's her. Everything was fine until Brooke wheeled her through that door. So until we cut into her. You're talking about a corpse. Any man or woman who consults the spirits of the dead shall be put to death. For they are... They are a witch. And their blood shall be on their own hands. They tortured her. She can feel it. She wants us to feel it. That's why she's keeping us alive. This is her revenge. This is her ritual. The Autopsy of Jane Doe is um, a it's a super different film directed by um, Norwegian director Andre Overdahl. And um, honestly, I didn't know what to expect when I saw it. It had really amazing key art and I knew it re- revolved around an autopsy. Um, but when I went to see it, it became seriously one of the most terrifyingly fun movies I'd ever seen. And um, it was just such a different movie. It took our traditional jump scare movie. And turned it into something completely new. So it was kind of like a mystery procedural. Um, and I think that the first time I saw it, I just, the first thing I thought was, I have to see this again. Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host. And that was Maddie Doe talking about Andre Overdahl's The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Ms. Doe is a film director whose debut horror film, Chantali, made her the first female director of a feature film in Laos. She followed that up with Dearest Sister, which became very noteworthy this past week for being the first feature film that Laos has submitted as an entry for Best Foreign Language Film for the upcoming 90th Academy Awards. Dearest Sister can now be viewed exclusively on Shudder. Ms. Doe, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was very um, very cool that I was invited at all. Thank you. <laughs> Hey, thank you so much for being on the show, I, I especially with what's likely to be, uh, I'm assuming, a very kind of crazy and hectic week for you with the announcement. Yeah, I mean, like, actually, I was very happy to be on your show because I love to discover new podcasts and um, new, just new news sources for genre. So when you invited me on the show, it's like, oh, here's another new one that I can listen to. So that's kind of great. <laughs> Excellent. Well, hey, I hope you like the uh, the previous episodes. And can I ask, you know, we'll, uh, we'll begin as we always do on the show with my asking, you know, given the option to choose any horror movie uh, to chat about at length, any at all, why is it that you went with the one you did? Why, uh, why the autopsy of Jane Doe? I actually chose autopsy of Jane Doe because um, for me, it was just such a surprising film. Um, you know, they had a heavy marketing campaign where they actually brought the corpse, the the mannequin, I guess you could call it, um, to different film festivals. And it was lying there on an operating table with its body open wow. and you could take pictures with it. 
Um, so that was already intriguing to, and I had no idea what the film was about. So when I went to watch a film, it was just one of the scariest films that I had ever watched. I felt like a kid again. I was jumping out of my seat, hiding behind like festival programs, you know, peeking from behind <laughs> festival programs. I was just so terrified. And initially I had chosen um, Robert Eggers' The Wit, but I think that a lot of people talk about that film. I mean, it had a big heyday when it was first introduced and people still talk about that film. And with Andre Overdahl's film, um, it's fun. You know, it's not one of these, it's, it's an innovative genre film. It's super different from everyone else. And yet it's not, it's still a traditional jump scare movie. And I think it's nice to have fun genres still, you know, like I get that with this new wave of genre, having like something very serious or having something very um, introspective that we have to think about. It's nice to have these films where you can just go and enjoy and feel the chills again. <laughs> I agree entirely. I, and I loved it for that. It felt like, you know, I, this is an overused term certainly, but I think it really applies here. The movie feels like a roller coaster throughout. Definitely. And one that keeps you just, Every time you drop, you think, oh, that's it. Okay, that's the end of the drop. And then all of a sudden you're falling again. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And the way that it kind of, you know, it is a fun movie, but straight away it sets up this sort of, I don't know, it kind of immediately sets up more of a grim tone, you know, by showing us a crime scene where something horrible has happened, you know, several horrible things, in fact, you know, with the the cops snapping pictures of various horrors throughout a home before finding, you know, the, the young woman's body half buried in the earth that can't be identified, you know, so she's the Jane Doe in the film. And we're told that the victims in the home appear to be trying to break out of it. And, you know, it's just right. that opening scene, much like the rest of the movie. But, I mean, it's so well written and directed, those first couple of minutes where the tone is set and the central mystery is set up, you know, both so deftly. It's so impressive that, that again, that initial and two minutes. And immediately, too. You know, that immediately, like, Andre doesn't fuck around. He gets right into it. I love that. <laughs> And what I love about it is like when it first opens, I didn't notice until I um, rewatched it again, was it even starts out almost like you're from the point of view of the corpse um, because it starts out very blurred and clouded and upside down. And as you know, you find her buried in that basement um, off kilter and it kind of straightens and clears up right into this house that's filled with this um, crime scene. And it almost right away you feel this presence that, it's not your point of view and it's not the character's point of view. It's something else. And this is what I love about it. You, you feel right away like you're being watched, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It kind of immediately sets up this tone of unease, which, uh, Mm -hmm. which is just great, you know? And, And you're right. I mean, just right off the bat, the moment that we leave the opening credits, we're kind of like in there. And yet at the same time, you know, that's only two or three minutes of the opening, but then right after that, only a moment later, the tone lightens. You know, we meet the uh, the Tildens, you know, the father-son mortician duo, and rock music is playing as they do a post-mortem. Yes. And, you know, it, it kind of, like, infuses the movie, which started so grimly, but it, it becomes something new. It's kind of simultaneously ghoulish and lighthearted in a way, you know, especially when they go into playing that game where they try and determine the cause of death of the corpse that they're working on. And, you know, and again, so much is setting tone too. it also kind of gives us bits of plot or important character information because it sets up this idea that even though the Tildens are father and son, you know, even though they're co-workers, they're almost set up as detectives right away. And it feels kind of like a buddy movie right away. Yeah, and I and I believe that that um, 
that sort of fun tone, that atmosphere was superly well handled, like super well handled, actually, because when it starts out, it's so gruesome to us to see that murder scene. And then when we go in there, they're looking at a body that's infinitely more disgusting and gruesome than what we even just saw a moment ago. And they're laughing, like not laughing, but it's just day-to-day work for them. And they're listening to the rock music and they're playing their little investigation game and he's teaching his son. And um, that contrast is something that I super love and they have super fun moments. I don't know how spoilery your show is, but you know, when, when they start to discover the strange things about Jane Doe herself, there's even that moment of disbelief that passes them and they're almost amused by it as, as long as, you know, as well as terrified, they're amused and terrified by it because they're just like, this doesn't happen. This happens in movies. And they both exchange these looks that are like, no, this can't be happening. But at the same time, they run away because it is happening, you know, know, (laughs) when they're being haunted, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm so glad that you said that a moment ago. I should tell listeners right now that even though, yeah, it's going to be totally spoilery because, uh, you know, for the most part, we have done... uh, you know, fairly older movies. Uh, I think up until a couple of episodes ago, the most recent movie we'd done was already nearly, oh gosh, a decade old. But uh, a couple of episodes wow. ago, we did Get Out, which, you know, is this mm. year. And now we're doing the autopsy. I saw that. I heard that. Yeah. Oh, it's so good, that movie. But um, mm. but yeah, so I should warn listeners, uh, even though The Autopsy of Jane Doe is a relatively recent film, we are going to be diving into spoilers. So that's your warning. Make certain to pause the podcast if you haven't seen it, check out the movie, and then come back, please. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, I I love the relationship that's set up immediately between uh you know the Tildens. We have Austin the son played by Emil Hirsch. We have uh Tommy the father played by Brian Cox and they're both amazing. They have this chemistry where it feels like I don't know, it almost feels like we're watching the last episode of a long-running TV series. Like these guys have been solving crimes in their lab, you know, while doing postmortems and joking and it just feels like there's this very lived in space with these two guys and Mm. it it, it immediately feels believable that they're father and son and they work together so well and then uh unfortunately again with spoilers uh this is going to be their last time working together job yeah i mean the son and the father feel super real. They they feel like a real father and son. They they felt like coroners that have been working for years, you know, completely unfazed by, um, well, the goriness that's lying on the table. And um, and he does this thing that's so great. They obviously have a wonderful relationship as father and son, and that they can be chummy. But there's also kind of this cold. Mm, I'm going to say Asian parent because I'm Asian. So I know what Asian parents are like aspect of, you know, the son being a little intimidated by the father um, because he's such a respectable older figure who, um, and he's also the only, the only figure of authority in the house since the mother passed away, um, which that felt so real to me, but the environment, you know, the, the actual morgue, the, their offices in the home, it all felt so lived in the art direction in that film was phenomenal, actually. Yeah, yeah. It has kind of this it feels like a functional place. It feels real, but at the same time there's kind of a beauty to the production design too of this really, you know, otherwise really creepy space. And, you know, it it mm-hmm. there's this stylish aspect to it, but it doesn't feel overbearing in a way, I guess. And um yeah, I love that space. And even more than that, the writing is just so damn good when we 
hear this father and son talk and go back and forth like it. So I, I use this word earlier, but I mean, it does feel very deft in the way that it sets up who these characters are so quickly and yet so realistically and so naturally, too, especially with how they approach, I suppose, the problem of each body or the problem of each mm-hmm. corpse when they play that game you know we we find out that austin the son always wants to know the why you know he's curious right. in that way. whereas tommy is he has that emotional attachment still yeah totally and i wonder if that doesn't sort of aid him to an extent you know in the end of the movie until you know spoilers what happens happens but um you know he's an interesting contrast to his father tommy who describes himself as more of a traditionalist you know and he only cares about the physical aspects of the job. He only cares about the evidence in front of him. And it really, it sets these guys up in an interesting way because we know that's how they're going to approach Jane Doe, you know, this supernatural Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, well, at this point in the movie, presumably supernatural, if not overtly supernatural uh, problem. And it's just, I, 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 again, I love the writing in the film. I think it's so smart and so sharp. But the transition happens with even that for the character. So because Tommy begins to become emotional about what has happened to Jane Doe, and he begins to build um, the personal assumptions about what happened to her and uh, what he needs to do for her next. Whereas um, the son, Austin, just kind of is like, no, this is a body and we need to get rid of it now because this is a source of our problem. And all I can say is, this is where it all began and originated. Like, let's get rid of it. Let's just burn it down, you know? And they really make this interesting transition as characters. And I had asked Andre about it before with the, uh, with the script and how it was written. And um, he had, I believe that the script was given to him finished. And I think it was written by two other um, screenwriters. He was like, everything was on the page. It was a beautiful screenplay when he got it. He said, um, it, it's one of those things where when you read it, it's built like that on the page and all the details are there. And so he was really lucky to like have a screenplay that fits so perfectly well together. It was a perfect roadmap for him, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you can definitely tell that. I think it feels like a very, it doesn't feel loose in any way in plotting. Mm. There doesn't seem to be much improvisation. It seems like a perfectly lean kind of, you know, Swiss watch of a movie, I think. And uh, yeah, I love it all the exactly. more for that because, you know, I that's kind of rare in that way. And I, you know, it's not like I need every horror movie to be like that or any movie period or whatever. But when you see something that's so well crafted, not only what's in front of the camera, but, you know, the script that's being worked from it's I, I really appreciate that as a viewer. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we all need a little bit of that once in a while because, of course, we don't mind once in a while seeing um, really jagged films or even sometimes slightly nonsensical films. But seeing something like that, it's just a well-oiled machine that just rolls so smoothly from beginning to end, from start to finish. It's just, it's satisfying, you know? And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to choose this film was because after I saw it, I had to go see it again. And then I had to come home and I had to get my husband to go see it because it was one of those movies where I was like, I was like it's great from start to finish. And Second time it was great, and third time it was great. So, <laughs> so I gotta ask, what was the difference for you between that first and second viewing? Because I, I actually saw the movie for the first time earlier this year and really liked it, but I haven't revisited it until, uh, or didn't revisit it until uh, right before this chat. So, uh, as sort of a refresher, and it occurred to me that sort of knowing 
what's coming. You have a different appreciation for the movie watching it a second time. And it's not like there's a big twist or anything like that. No, right. It sort of resets or, you know, reconfigures everything that's come before for us as a viewer. But at the same time, knowing what's coming, you can sort of see the characters' fates lined up very early on, you know. And I was wondering if you had much the same sort of uh, reaction. How was that second and third viewing for you? You would think that knowing what's coming, the film might be um, just okay, right? Just not as entertaining as the first um, raucous ride when you first watched it. But with with the autopsy of Jane Doe, that is not the case. Of course, um, you lose a mystery when you watch it. You know right away what she is and what happened to her. Um, so that's not a mystery anymore. But then you start to appreciate like the small details about what she is and who she was. And... What I love about Autopsy of Jane Doe is even though you see it coming, you see the jump scares coming, you know you're going to hear that dingling bell. So you know you're going to see that terrible corpse at the end of the hallway. But, you know, the director does this, oh, it's ridiculous. He does this trick on you. And this is where I say that he has mastered the traditional horror movie is, you know, there's this thing that all directors do with sound design where you start to build up this tension sound and then you pull it back down to almost silence. And as soon as it reaches true silence, you use like there's a little bit of time where you see the character looking through a hole or looking through the door or something. And then, bah, right, the jump scare happens. <laughs> he pulls it out just long enough that you, you totally expect it. You know it. You've seen the movie before. I've seen it like three or four times, this film. And I'm still like jumping out of my fucking skin because he's done this trick where it's just slightly longer I think than a traditional jump scare that we're all used to and maybe we're super um maybe we're super conditioned from the 80s or something to think that a jump scare is going to last about this long and he he takes it a step farther and I really love it it's it's nice to feel scared again especially when you work in film and you know how things are being done <laughs> you know the movie it really does have some sort of expertly crafted scares you know you mentioned the jump scares but you know there are those sort of boo gotcha kind of moments but there's also that sort of sense of creeping dread throughout which is scary enough and then there are some of the bigger set pieces like the uh you know the corpse attack on tommy and you know setting jane on fire which are really disturbing and intense but you know we have some gross gory moments but even you know, even the would-be jump scare moments, like you mentioned, even those are crafted and timed in such a way that they don't feel cheap, you know? Like, nothing yeah. feels sort of half-heartedly designed in the movie right down to the scares. And I don't know, as a longtime horror fan who, you know, I, I'm a sucker for most scary movies. Jump scares I usually find fun no matter what, but it's really nice yeah. to see somebody mess with those and play with our expectations as to what a jump scare is. I mean, he really does super cleverly turns a jump scare in an art with autopsy of Jane Doe, but that creeping dread feeling. Oh man, that's, I think that that's definitely camera work. I mean, Andre and his DOP have this way of, um, you know, and you said it best when you said creeping dread. They are literally creeping with the camera. They're using these really smooth, steady shots where it just, whenever you you see the camera or the, the characters from behind, the camera is following them and it feels like a spirit or a presence is following them. And it's almost otherworldly. It's ethereal because since they're using the steady or whatever it is that they're using, I, I, I didn't ask him, um, 
it just floats through with them. And that's not natural. You know, humans don't move in such a smooth way. And I think that really adds to the sense of creeping dread that you're talking about. And he uses a lot of low angles. Um, so you're very aware, not just of the surroundings and of the characters, but of the ceiling. You already know you're in a basement. You already know you're closed off. And he they did a super good job of making you feel like, this this area, this lab that they work in is really underground and, you know, the, it's confined, especially the hallway spaces. And, you know, the lights are flickering all the time and they're always tapping on the lights to get the lights to function. What happens when the electricity doesn't work? Which, during the storm, the electricity doesn't work. And during the haunting, the electricity doesn't work. They're fucking trapped in there. It's scary <laughs> as hell, you know. And the camera work really adds to that, I think. Yeah, I think you were right when you were talking about the opening shot, you know, the feeling that we're possibly seeing events through Jane's eyes, or at least from her point of view in a weird way. And it, I think that kind of extends to the sequences, you know, in the, the uh, you know, in the basement with Tommy and Austin. It feels like the threat to them is more than simply the body on the table. It feels like there is a threat that's sort of enveloping them in a way like there is a, a potential threat coming at them from any and every possible angle in it again i don't want to overuse that phrase but that creeping dread it's always there that sort of permanent sense of unease and um i i i think that's all down to overdall's direction he's so good at setting that tone and keeping you uh again just kind of uneasy yeah i mean i think that he's ultra masterful in doing that. I mean, he has thought of the details down to down to the smallest things, like the paint on the walls. I, I was noticing um, last time I watched the film that, you know, I had said this to you earlier, there's that green chalkboard that they're always writing on. And you always get attracted to this green chalkboard because it's kind of the center of attention. It's where the mystery is being figured out and solved, right? Because they're taking they're taking notes on this big green chalkboard. And it's got this, like, Classical, not quite blue-green, not quite um, traditional Kelly green. It's chalkboard green, and the walls are that color. And the things that are not that color are, like, the the hallway walls are this brownish burgundy color. There's burgundy and brown everywhere. It gives it this, like, really vintage feel. And he puts darkness. He, like, flags off a lot of light so that you can see, like, entire corners cut off with shadow. And so you just never know, like, what's back there and what's going to jump at you or if there's something blending in with those dark burgundy blood-colored walls. And he, he really plays with contrast to the point where, like, there's nothing white in that film. If you notice, there's nothing white. Everything is – the closest thing to white, I would say, is, like, silver accents because, of course, you're in a morgue. And so they have those, those freezers and the drawers and the operating table, which Jane lies on. But she's the only thing that is pristine, clean, and white in that whole, in the whole setting. And so, you know, she becomes this, like, eye of the storm that you're super, I don't want to say attracted to. I mean, she's a beautiful, she's a beautiful corpse, but the it's magnetic. You're pulled to her. And so I think that he, he is very intentional in making that, that. So she really is a center of that veritable storm. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, absolutely. And she gets prettier as the movie goes on. That's so creepy. She smiles more as the movie goes on. <laughs> she has a gleam in her eye, and that's really freaking creepy because she seems to be playing with them. She's just lying still, and she's just playing with them. 
Yeah, and I, I think proper credit should be given to, uh, I believe it's Owen Kelly for playing the title character Jane. You know, she she has no lines. She never appears alive throughout the film. You know, I don't think her face so much as twitches while we're, you know, focused on her. And yet, yeah. you know, to have been on the table that entire time and still have, you know, presence beyond what her co-stars and the director did to give that character life, I think she sort of imbued that corpse with... Um, you know, in a strange life. way, a, a life, <laughs> yes, absolutely, and a, a a personality of sorts. And I can't imagine that could have been easy. I think somebody could look at, you know, that performance and be like, ah, "She just laid on a table." But th- there's so much more going on there than that. I think there is. There's so much more. I mean, she had to be dead, but her character definitely made it an evolution from being cold, dead, and lifeless to being helpless to being a victim to being malevolent and enjoying it, you know, and um, that's something that I don't think that's, I don't think that's a, a very easy feat for someone just lying still the whole time. And she moves amazingly. Like when they, when they pick her up and they move her around or when they like open her jaw up, you know, open her mouth up, she moves like a corpse actually. And, um, I believe that Andre and their team like really studied how corpses and et cetera moved. And I know that um, Emil Hirsch and Brian Cox like actually did go spend time with a lot of coroners to be just to get the like mannerisms and to observe that kind of casual behavior that they have about death, you know, and that dark humor that they all seem to possess from being around death all the time. Um, so she definitely her role is pretty crazy to have to like study these bodies and figure out how to move like one without moving at all (laughs) yeah Yeah, absolutely and i you know she is the centerpiece of the movie too but you know once we start to find out more about the character herself that's when things start really getting creepy you know when when our heroes start discovering various things sort of not necessarily Yes. Yeah, like wrong, but just unexpected too. Like the gray eyes, and at first, and you know, the her temperature being colder than the room, and her, uh, yes. as they point out, the exceptionally small waist, and her, oh, the yes. fractured wrists and ankles with no obvious signs, and then the it's severed shattered. tongue. Like, it's just the movie piles on all these little details, which become mysteries. Which, you know, again, while it's ghoulish and it's horrific, they all add to the strange sort of fun to the film it's weirdly playful in a way and you know i i was recalling like uh overdoll's previous movie troll hunter the tone isn't dissimilar to that where it takes itself seriously but you're allowed to have a little bit of fun with what's going on too and i i love that balance oh i love how much fun they have in the movie just the two characters themselves um the two father and son characters they they have so much fun and i love that you know in a, you know when you watch a horror movie, no one ever knows what a witch is or what a zombie is. No one ever says, oh, my God, that's a fucking zombie. A zombie is coming after me. It's always <laughs> like, what is that? In what world does a zombie not exist? The, the minute I saw a corpse lurching at me, the first thing I think is, zombie. But Austin and Tommy are so aware. It's like they know all the horror movie tropes, and it's almost ridiculous to them when things start happening to them. It's like... It's unbelievable to them, and they're people of medical science. You know what I mean? They're they're science mind 
they're science minds, they're thinkers. So with with unexplainable things start happening to them, they always have this look on their face like, did that just really happen? <laughs> like for reals, did that just really happen? Because we're either gonna die or we're just gonna like shake our heads and laugh about this tomorrow. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, and, and it felt so palpable. <laughs> and plus, when they voice what we're thinking to as an audience, the uh, you know perhaps that. In a way, the biggest jaw-dropping moment in the movie, to me anyway, was the moment when it's revealed that Jane has this sort of entire second layer of flesh covering her that Tommy cuts away, revealing its inside as being covered with, you know, the sort of writing and sigils and everything. But, you know, at at this point, all hell breaks loose, the lights shatter, and Mm. Brian Cox, as Tommy has the single best line in the movie, when he just stares at his son and says, let's get the fuck out of here. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so he says it in that tone of voice. Let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> it's just so great because Austin before that had already felt like, can we just finish this tomorrow? Like when it's daylight outside, you know, like he's already done. But then when when Tommy says it, you know, it's just it's gone over the top for them. You know? Oh, absolutely. And that was that was super weird too because it kind of felt like she was flipped inside out. That she was so perfect on the outside. And you see all the stab wounds and you see the broken bones and um, the sigils that are like tattooed all over on the inside of her skin and the burn marks from obviously being burned at the stake, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's really strange how how Andre decided to do that. Well, how his writers had written that where it was just like flipped inside out for her. Um, I, I just think that that's another one of those creative things that no one's ever really thought about trying to do or write. And I super appreciated that. And it started out, like you said, that fun mystery, that procedural. Um, It's just the movie went right into it. Okay, here's a corpse. It's kind of weird. And let's go right into the procedural. Wait, this is not a procedural film. This is a fucking full-on jump scare horror movie. (laughs) It's not just a thriller anymore, you know? No, absolutely. And plus all of those things, too, like uh, as the details build and build and all these little mysteries are sort of coming forth from Jane, you know, the, these little discoveries they're making, it kind of starts to build, at least initially, this kind of sympathy for Jane, though, in a way. You know, that all of these terrible things happen to this poor woman who is obviously mm. tortured and you can't help but mm. feel for her a bit, at least, you know, until we start to learn a little bit more about her true nature. But even then... You know, you you can't help but feel for it a little bit. And it it was a really interesting thing, I think, for the movie to play with in that regard. And what's otherwise Mm -hmm. meant to be a scary and fun movie that we are asked to an extent, I think, to kind of feel bad for the villain of the piece. Yeah, and actually, I do still feel bad. Like, she scared me. She terrified me. And even at the end, when she's obviously still the villain... um, Tommy was right. You know, the father The father really helps the audience to connect to that sympathy that these women who were um, who were burned at the stake during the Salem witch trials were innocent. And a lot of it was just, well, it was all just hysteria and manipulation. And she was one of the people that was caught up in it. But even when he, he feels so much sympathy for her that when he sacrifices himself for her and she still continues her rampage, and she is still continuing her rampage. I don't completely hate her because if you think about the hundreds of years of her living through that torture and then, you know, she's kind of, how can I say this? She's kind of like that curse that just goes on from the moment of rage that never dies and can't die. 
it's kind of like the mummy's curse, except it's like the witch's curse, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I do like that moment, too, when it's sort of revealed that she is a witch, or at least what they understand initially as being a witch. But I do love that moment where Tommy does point out that, you know, there were no witches in Salem, you know, only young girls who were falsely accused and executed. But uh, I and I do love that moment where he determines that Jane was very likely one of those innocents, but the torture that she received warped her into the very thing that she was accused of being. And, you know, it reminded me, you mentioned earlier that uh, your initial choice might have been the witch. And it yes, occurs to me. Robert Eggers. And that happens in that movie, totally. too. Because I don't think Thomason had any intention of being a witch or had any, you know, idea of even like what practicing witchcraft would be. And she's basically forced into it through accusation and through trials from her own family and maybe you know this is what happened with Jane Doe as well yeah the idea that you know an innocent can be persecuted for being something that they're not but that that will ultimately turn them into that very thing I think you know in a way that can almost be read as a cautionary tale and it's Mm. is very interesting and again it's a it's a really cool layer in a movie that is otherwise, you know, we mentioned that it's a roller coaster ride. We mentioned that it's fun and ghoulish and scary, but the movie has a bit more weight to it, I think, because of the revelation about Jane, I think. Mm. Well, I think that the movie has a lot of weight to it in general, just because, you know, the whole Salem witch hunt, the whole Salem witch trials, um, this is about mass hysteria and about that herd mentality and about the treatment of women. And so, like, to see it in this modern context is really interesting because it kind of, in our society, it's kind of happening again. And I'm going to take it on a really micro level here. Um, I don't know if you have children. I don't. But when I was – what's that? Oh, I don't. I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, you don't. When I was a young girl, when I was a teenager, you know, there's always that moment when your parents are, like, accusing you of something that you didn't do, but, like, they're accusing you of something. And and at some point, you know, as a teenager, you're sitting there, and you're – and this is a very personal level for me. You're sitting there, and you're thinking, like, God, I just got in trouble for something that I didn't even do. I tried to defend myself, and yet I'm still being accused of it. I may as well just do it at that point because, like, that's what everybody believes anyway. This, You know, like, it's better off if I just do it. They all already believe it. And in The Witch and Autopsy of Jane Doe, like, imagine, like, an entire village and your entire family just ganging up on you like that and completely disrespecting you to the point of killing you or murdering you or at least trying to in the case of Thomas. <laughs> and, you know, what, what happens when you get to that point? It, at least Thomason got to become a witch, but Jane Doe is just, you know, all she could do is exact revenge on everything that she comes into contact with. And I think it's valid. If everybody was against her, now she's going to be against anything that comes in contact with her for the rest of her life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that you pointed out this notion that, you know, you're dealing with material that we think of as being in the past. And yet by putting it in a modern setting, there is the sense that, you know, this is something that shouldn't be forgotten or it shouldn't be relegated solely to the history books, you know. And yeah. it, it feels like that's almost her function in a way, not only as this sort of wraith or, you know, not merely as a, a, a villain, but she's kind of like a reminder in a way. Of, yeah. And one wonders, I, like, how long has she been at it? I have no idea because obviously she's from that time period. So 
how did she get in that basement? Right? Yeah. How did she get in that basement? And they, the initial um, suspicion was that the guy that was working on some um, repairs and maintenance in that home was trying to bury her there. So they thought initially that he was a murderer, and he was found dead there as well. Um, so I don't know if you recall this, because this is quite a small detail in the film. Um, they said, oh, yeah, um, I forget his name, but he, some character was working on that house, and we think he's the killer because he was, you know, probably thought that family wasn't home, and since he had access to the house, since he was repairing the house, he probably brought her there to, like, cover it up, and maybe they came home, and, you know, he, or the, he got caught in the act and didn't realize that they would have a thirty-eight caliber, like, for self-defense, and it just got out of hand. And so I was just like, but that might be the case where he was trying to get rid of this body just because it was cursing him because maybe he discovered it somehow. But I don't know this backstory. Like, then before that, who else was she cursing? And before that, who else is she, like, affected? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, how far does this like, Jane Doe go? <laughs> yeah, it feels like in the world of that movie, there should almost be an urban legend about that body getting passed from person to person, unless we're meant to think that she's only been recently uncovered but i i i love the idea that uh, and it's a very creepy idea uh that the movie leaves us on but the idea that she's not going to be stopped like she isn't a vampire that you can just stake or a, a werewolf that you can hit with a silver bullet like so far as we know she's invincible and she's furious i, I think she might be she's furious so like she'll keep going they couldn't burn her i mean well, that's the last thing she would want is to be reburned again. Like, what's what can you do? Take her to holy ground or something? I'm not sure. Um, you know, maybe she'd always been under that house, but because nobody had ever encountered her before until that maintenance guy came and, like, was digging up pipes or something, encountered her, and then it unleashed her. Maybe that's what happened. But it seems like she's pretty unstoppable unless somebody, like, decides to bury her deep in the depths of, well, how did she get to that state anyway? Because remember, she she's from, obviously, she's from Salem. So how did she get to Virginia anyway? Yeah, that's the but, big question is, like, you know, they yeah. know that the earth was would likely place her, you know, north. And then we find out that she's from New England and then obviously Salem. But how did she wind mm. up there buried in the ground? Like, there's so much. And I love that the movie doesn't tell us. I love that we can sort of wonder about those things ourselves. But at the same time, I'll admit, like, if there were to be an autopsy of Jane Doe prequel or sequel or sidequel or whatever, I'm I'm going to be there for it. <laughs> I'd be there for it too, but I would hate to see it. You know what I mean? I think that our imagination plays like way wilder tricks on us. Like I could think of all kinds of crazy scenarios of what happened and how she ended up under that basement in Virginia. But I think that the imagination is better served not having a prequel. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and anyway, Andre's working, has just like finished shooting another movie called Mortal. So like, let's see what that has in store for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned too, like with the opening of the movie, like the, the, the horrors that are sort of hinted at, you know, once we get to the end of this movie and, you know, I really noticed this on the rewatch, when the movie opens, it's almost like we're seeing the end of another film. You know, like there there has been yes. all these events. There was a horror film that happened within that house. We simply didn't see it. And then there's this hope yes. built throughout the the movie that we are watching that our heroes, because we like them so much, that they're somehow going to avoid that same that fate. fate. And ultimately mm-hmm. the movie, I it feels like there's kind of a point of no return moment for me. And I don't know if it's the same for you, but early on, 
when Austin ditches his girlfriend to help with his father, you know, we find mm-hmm. out that he has plans of leaving the morgue and leaving with her and that he has this life planned out for himself. And, you know, in hindsight, it kind of provides a little bit of extra tragedy to the movie, you know, knowing that Austin was planning on getting out and with her. But, you know, I, I said earlier that the biggest jaw dropping moment was Jane's extra layer of skin, but maybe easily the biggest shock is the death of his girlfriend, Emma. You know, that horrible moment when, um, you know, Tommy strikes the at the axe. walking corpse yeah, with the axe. And, you know, that it... was so heartbreaking. <laughs> and, oh, that was so heartbreaking because in a way I kind of was like, oh, that's right. She was coming back to go to the movies, you know. But at the same time, we we both saw it and they both saw it. Austin and Tommy both saw it. It was definitely the shotgun guy in the hallway. And we saw it clearly, you know, so. It wasn't like our eyes are playing tricks on us, but it was Jane Doe. She like she was playing tricks on us. <laughs> <laughs> but it does, you know. I, it, you're right. It is heartbreaking, and especially their reactions to it. You know, Tommy and having killed an innocent Austin, obviously losing somebody he loved. But I mean, it, it felt to me like up until this point, because the movie did have kind of that, you know, fun tone at times, because it was kind of playful. It felt like we as audience members could entertain the notion that our heroes might escape and they're not going to wind up like the people at the very beginning of the movie, you know. But when Emma dies in this way, it feels like, again, you know, it feels like this is the point of no return. You know, if this movie can take that character out, you know, not a character that we had spent much time with, but nevertheless, we knew her importance. You know, if the movie can kill her in such a cruel way and if the film can go that dark then there was a sense, even on the first time that I watched the movie, that there wasn't much hope left at that point. Yeah. You know? I didn't I didn't realize that, but now that I think back on it, you're right. Like that is a moment where you're just like, Oh, well, the shit has hit the fan, you know? <laughs> I mean, right from the beginning you're like, that escalated quickly, but then after this you're like, Ooh, there's no turning back. And there's something that you know, there's something that you mentioned about that opening scene where it feels like it came from another movie. Like, it's the end of another horror movie. Um, there was, I can't remember what the film was called. It was a film where um, these people came into, broke into a house, and they were wearing these masks. There was like a fox and a bunny and a sheep or something. And they just killed everyone in the house for no reason and left. And these, like, little Mormon missionaries discovered the mayhem at the end of it. Do you know what film I'm talking about? Uh, the Strangers? Yes, yes, that film. And that's how most most um, slashers go. Everyone gets killed, and sometimes the killer gets away, or sometimes there's a final girl that gets away. But that last scene where it just like, kind of pans over the destruction and the bodies and the blood, right? And it's like, end of story. And so when it opens on that, it's kind of like, oh, did this is this from another movie? It happens in this film. It ends on that. It ends with... um, with Tommy and it ends with Austin dead and unable to escape and that's the end of that movie and then Jane Doe goes on so like the next film and I'm not saying there's going to be a next film but if there were a next film like it could start from that discovery into the next place that Jane Doe goes you know it's just it could be this horrible unbreakable chain like the ring yeah absolutely and I you know, I got to say, it's going to sound like I'm knocking the movie, and I'm really not at all because I do love it. I think it's a fantastic film. But 
you know, especially on the rewatch, a little bit the first time I watched it, but especially this time around, I was struck by the idea that as much as I can appreciate a downbeat ending, I wonder a little bit if the one at the end of this movie might have been maybe even just a little bit misjudged. And I'm only saying that because it reminded me of the Thai West movie, The Innkeepers. Have you seen it? Ah, where um, the the young girl and her friend in that um, in that old closing um, bed and breakfast, right? Yes, I've uh, seen that. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I I wrote a review for that movie once for a website when mm-hmm. the movie first came out. I pointed out how much I loved it because I do think it's a great movie. But you know, I loved it even though I felt the ending was a little out of place because the rest of the movie had this fairly kind of upbeat tone even for being scary it was much like Jane Doe kind of playful and fun and roller coastery and yet it had what amounted to being a really sad and tragic ending and I remember equating it with like you know if Ghostbusters had ended with one of our heroes dying while fighting Zool you know it would feel just a little off and I I go back and forth. Or the baby died. <laughs> yeah, or the baby dying. Like, imagine that. You know, you laugh all the way through Ghostbusters yeah. and then you walk out feeling kind of bummed out. But <laughs> I, I go back and forth on that with Autopsy because I like the ending a lot. I like that there is this sort of circular nature. We end where we began. But at the same time, it, it, it definitely did have a darker tone than, say, the innkeepers. But, you know, it's mm-hmm. earlier playfulness and the fun of the picture. I don't know. It just felt like the movie's sort of utterly bleak and hopeless ending kind of betrayed that a little bit. And I don't know that it would have if one of our heroes had made it out. Like, you know, we have Tommy's... I don't think so. I don't think so. I felt like the ending was super playful. I thought it was ultra bleak, like you said, um, that they both died, right? That at the end, it started yeah, how we even, began even if with the, that panning over the destruction. <laughs> but that bell and the song, like, I almost feel like we had become Jane Doe there's a part of us that becomes Jane Doe because we get that chill when we hear the bell, you know, and the song comes on and you get that little chill, but you also get that little giggle like, oh my God, here we go. Like, <laughs> you know, and you almost feel a little bit wicked like her, I think. You're kind of like, ah, oh, shit, here we go. And maybe that's just like that, that thrilling delight. I think that is kind of playful in a really sick and dark way. <laughs> it is, it is. I... I guess, you know, it's a testament to the movie's uh, characters, you know, and how much we love them, I suppose, that mm-hmm. I kind of feel that way because I, I do really like Tommy and I do really like Austin. They did feel like real mm-hmm. people to me and they had great chemistry. And, you know, I I guess maybe the thing that hurt the most, and I'm sure this is intentional and I'm not certainly saying it's a flaw, but I mean, Tommy ultimately realizing what Jane might want and sacrificing mm. himself to and it wasn't yeah yeah and I, he was being so kind hearted you know he was being so oh he was being like just so thoughtful and considerate to the fact that she has been wronged and what can he do to make it right you know uh, is this a reparation because and he was willing to do it and that was heartbreaking yeah and it seemed like you're right i it felt like, in a way, part of it was for her. Like, obviously, he wanted to save his son, and it feels like there's a moment where a deal is struck between the two. Mm-hmm. And then all of the, uh, the the violence that had been, you know, sort of wrought upon her is taken out on his own body as she sort of heals mm-hmm. up. And 
I, I think I would have even been completely fine with that. Like, it would have been grim, but if Austin had made it out, I, you know, I, I think it would have been even that much more upbeat. But there's that idea that Tommy's ultimate sacrifice kind of means nothing in a way. Like, a deal was struck, and then the moment Austin tries to get out, she's just kind of like, nope, nope, you're going to die too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that it's not even that it kind of means nothing. I just think that she is beyond she is beyond forgiveness. She's so enraged and she's been so hurt. I mean, you see you saw the multiple stab wounds in her. You saw that she was charred and, you know, her tongue was cut off while she was alive. There was no anesthesia. She was paralyzed while they did everything, you know. And I you probably know from um, history that during the Salem, the Salem um, trials, they actually did all kinds of torturous things and tried to keep the person alive as long as possible because it actually only proved their point further that that person was a witch the longer they stayed alive, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think she was just um, a beautiful ball of rage. And <laughs> I don't know, maybe you can think of it, like, in a different, more positive way. If you were... If you were Austin and you were alive and you survived that and you you saw the supernatural crap, you saw your father being tortured and uh, killed by a malevolent spirit in front of you, you saw your girlfriend get axed down by your father, like, what kind of future do you have (laughs) (laughs) mentally? mentally. (laughs) Very true. Maybe at that point. He's not about to pack his suitcase and go to university and just, like, have a happy dorm life. (laughs) Maybe Jane kept up her end of the bargain, and then she really, you know, maybe she considered that, and she thought it might be a mercy killing at that point. Exactly. Maybe Jane, maybe that is, like, Jane's first steps into being merciful. (laughs) Her first steps towards, like, forgiving humanity was to do something humane, and that is to, like, fucking kill Austin. (laughs) She was killing out of kindness, so... Yes, exactly. Killing out of kindness. I'm sure that works in every court of law. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, but again, I wasn't, you know, it, it's not sort of a knock against the movie. It's just something that, you know, I kind of considered on that second time around. It's just like, you know, it, but at the same time, the movie does play fair because, you know, it's not like we end in a place that's any more grim than where we began. You know, the Sorry. movie opens exactly. as a very cold, chilling, you know, straight-up horror movie. And then our characters bring in that sort of light, I think. And then once they're gone, the movie ends in much the same place that it began tonally. So I I think the movie does play fair in that way. Yeah. I think... And I think that that's where um, Andre's super show skill is that it ends the way it begins, and that's what I was... You know, when I said that the movie is really interesting because it starts out with something completely new and becomes something more traditional and recognizable as a traditional horror film, but yet, like, doesn't leave you feeling unsatisfied. You don't walk out of the theater going, oh, that was it. It was just like any other horror film. Not at all. In fact, it leaves you, like I said, with that, like, that wicked tingle of delight, that little thrill of, and Jane is back to strike again you know and (laughs) instead of being completely scared you're almost curious and it's um that's why i feel like we become a part of jane a little bit that we're like curious and we have that little bit of glee like she does when she's killing everyone (laughs) 
Like, how will she, how will she do it next? And where will she go next? You know, whose basement does she end up in next? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering when she's in the van and, you know, the, the toad does that great twitch and we hear the bell. Like, one wonders, is yeah. is she only going to wreak havoc upon, like, corners? Or is there, you know, how does that body travel around? How will she get into different adventures? You know, I, I love that we're left in that place just wondering about what the future of Jane Doe is. Yeah. I mean, God, I can't imagine her on on the roadside just, like, cursing whatever person drives past her on, like, <laughs> I-80 or something. <laughs> be great. I, 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 I would love to see a road trip movie with Jane. Uh, you know, just <laughs> oh, my God. It's like hanging out in the passenger seat or in the trunk. With, but with Jane Doe, weekend with Jane Doe. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's a movie. I need to call Andre and tell him that's your next film. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> so I, I, I got to ask before we start wrapping up here a bit, you know, you you chose the autopsy of Jane Doe, which is a supernatural horror film. And you were also potentially considering talking about The Witch, which is another horror movie that has, you know, some decidedly supernatural elements in it by the time we get to the ending. And your own features deal with the supernatural a bit. Can I ask why? Why do those types of stories appeal to you as both a fan and as a storyteller and filmmaker? I think that, well, I've always liked them, even when I was young. Those are the films that I preferred. I mean, I even when I was a kid, I even read um, supernatural stories. Like, I, I grew up reading a lot of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, one of my favorite authors is H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, yes. um, and so maybe I just liked it and... So, of course, like, when you asked me to speak about a horror film that I really liked or wanted to talk about, it would be... I mean, I could have gone completely the opposite direction and talked about a film that I really, really fucking despised. But <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about films that I liked, and so, of course, my taste preference would go towards something that I was already, you know, already personally attracted to in the first place. And I, I've told a lot of people before that, like, I think every culture can feel the same chills and scares for the supernatural. Even even for something like witches, we all have witches in every culture. We all have ghosts in every culture, and we all know how to feel scared. And even though the Salem witch trials weren't exactly like um, the witches here or the witches in other parts of Europe, we understand it, and we all feel terror, and we can all feel that universal that universal creeping dread, like you say, you know? Whereas if I were to do drama, I think that they're not that associative. Like, some people can't associate with the typical cultural dramas that are happening in other countries. And I live in a country where our culture is terribly not well-known. You know, people, a lot of people can't even find Lao on a map. And so for me to just make a very by-the-book, you know, poverty porn drama about the the kid and the old auntie surviving in a hut on a dirt road with no food to eat. So if I were to make that typical by the book poverty porn drama, um, <laughs> I don't think that a lot of people could associate with it. It's like, oh yeah, I don't want people to pity my culture either or my people either. I don't want people to be like, oh, that's sad. Those like those poor brown people, and then they go and buy like Starbucks coffee for five bucks, which for five bucks I can have a steak dinner here. You know, like. <laughs> I don't want that either, but then if I make a ghost story, I can put elements of my culture in it, and I can put elements of fear that everybody understands in it. 
and that's just universally more understood and universally more associative. And so I think I would prefer that as a storyteller to be able to reach an audience, you know, a wide audience. I cannot think of a better place to uh, wrap up than there. I, uh, sure. I think that's just about our time. Thank you so much for being on the show. And can I ask before we go, where can folks find you at online and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Well, if if um, your audiences are listening from America or Canada or um, Ireland and the UK, they can definitely find us on Shudder.com. Um, there's Shudder in the UK and in Canada and Ireland. So it's definitely available there. And it's also available on iTunes. But um, for other markets, uh, we are... We are still looking for ways to distribute in other markets, and so we're just going to have to wait and see where we end up next. But in Mexico, we're going to be in Mexico um, theatrically soon, actually. So, oh, you know, fingers cool. crossed that you get to see it if you're not in one of the places that offer Shutter, or if you're not if you don't have an American iTunes account. <laughs> All right. Now, again, I I just like to say congratulations very much again for uh, for dear sister being uh, uh, submitted to the Academy Awards. That's incredible. Thank you so much. I'm like just oh my god, my mind is so blown from it. I'm still I'm still not really sure what to do. And now I'm getting calls of like with people saying like who's representing you? Um who's your PR agent? And I'm just like no one. I'm almost like thinking about lying and giving them my dog Pocky's name or something. It'd be like contact Pocky for any like publicity request. <laughs> it's like I'm so in over my head. <laughs> All right. I I can't wait to see what you do next. And again, thank you so much for your time. It was a blast chatting with you and about the autopsy of Jane Doe. All right. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below, rate and review us on iTunes, and give us a yell on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Screamatix, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. She said he causes trouble when you let him in the room. Let's get the fuck out of here.